Uh, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Vine Church. It's my privilege to open up uh, God's Word with you this morning. Uh, before we do that, let's pray to God. Ask that He might um, speak to us from His Word. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your Word. Please open our eyes and our minds, soften our hearts, help us to see who you are, your goodness to us, your love for us and our deep need for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friend posted uh, this photo on Facebook just this week and the caption reads, Sydney Domestic, 4.21pm, very precise, Thursday the 8th of July. This is what monumental failures by all levels of government looks like. Deserted airports, according to my friend, is failed leadership. Now, some context to this photo. My friend and I, we flew together in the Air Force and just about the same time that I went to Bible college, he left the Air Force and got a job with Qantas. And so what he calls a monumental failure by all levels of government is his lament of the loss of livelihood. And he's saying, where are the vaccines? Where are the enforced lockdowns? And he's directing his lament at his situation at leadership. Now, okay, easy targets. They've got a hard job to do. But this is what we find time and time again. When a business culture is toxic... It's because of bad leadership. When a political party is falling apart from the inside, the problem is the leadership. And my son, he goes to Burke Street Public School, and if anyone's been there for longer than 10 years, they'll tell you that that school's a great school because of leadership. It's leadership that turned that school around. That's the importance of the topic which we're talking about today, leadership. Now, we also live in a world which is very sceptical of leaders. Leader after leader is stepped down out of their position, out of businesses, out of political parties, out of churches, uh, not just because they've failed in their role in profits, in the votes, or in their failure of their character, but because they've used the very trust which we gave them as our leader to serve themselves. And when you're hurt by enough leaders, when you've seen enough leaders just do what's good for them, you can become very sceptical of leadership. And so we come to the pages of the Bible and God presents himself as our ruler. And he installs kings. And so we ask the question, what is God's leader like? Is he like the leaders of this world? And if not, what makes him different? Or we might ask, uh, if God is good, and if he is our king, what are the elements which make up a good leader? What's at the heart of a good leader? What makes up a character of a good leader? Now, word of warning, as we come to 2 Samuel, the Bible's very real talks about real events, real places happening to real people, and it doesn't pass over messy details which we might otherwise not include in our day-to-day conversation or with kids around. Uh, if you happen to be watching this either now or down the track, 
and kids are in the lounge room. I'm going to be mentioning briefly, won't dwell on them, but I'll mention things which you might not yet have talked about with your kids. And I'm telling you this out of experience. Um, one of the events which happened in this passage, or referred to in this passage, happened in the street that I live on. And uh, I was talking to my neighbour about it, and it was evident that she hadn't spoken to her son about it, because he was there too. And when I brought it up, you could see this lady's eyes like, what are you doing? And I could see the son's eyes and he was like, what's he doing? Uh, And I just wanted to disappear. So I don't want that to happen to you. And it's maybe a a fair word of warning throughout this whole passage. Um, The Bible speaks about things that are very real. Won't skip over the the messy details. And uh, we're kicking off our new series today, as I mentioned. It's part two in our series, actually because we worked our way through 1 Samuel two years ago. Uh, It's a practice of Vine Church. We work our way through books of the Old Testament. Vine Church started 10 years ago and uh, kicked it off in the book of Genesis. Next year, Exodus. So two years ago, we did 1 Samuel. Last year, we skipped ahead and looked at one of the prophets. But this year, we've returned and we're looking at 2 Samuel, working our way through uh, the Old Testament and all of its goodness to us. And so we come to the book of 2 Samuel, And we see that David becomes the leader. He becomes the leader. That is, there already is a leader in Israel. And that was Saul. Saul was the king that Israel had asked for. The king like all the other nations. And they get the king like all the other nations. He's proud, he's disobedient, he's self-serving, he's a tyrant. And so God installs a king after his own heart, David. And so what do you think Saul, who is proud, disobedient, self-serving, a tyrant, thinks of this David? He hates him. He wants to kill him. He throws spears at him. He tries to turn his son Jonathan against him. And when Jonathan refuses, he throws a spear at Jonathan. He takes the whole army through the countryside searching for David and David's hiding in caves and he's moving from town to town and finally he says enough's enough and he flees out of Israel and goes and takes up refuge amongst his enemies, the Philistines. So that's the context as we come into this particular chapter but what we're going to see in the book of 2 Samuel is we're going to see God bringing about his kingdom through his king. The book of 1 Samuel, Saul's the king, and Saul's a failure. The book of 2 Samuel, David will become the king, and David is a success, and he fails. And so what we need is we need a king who is all success, no fails. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to work our way through the passage which we had read for us. I'm going to highlight a couple of things along the way and then we'll get to the end and we'll see what we can learn about uh, God's King and what that would mean for us. So if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open. 2 Samuel chapter 1, we'll work our way through it. Um, What you need to know is that in the previous chapter, uh, Saul is on the battlefield, Israel's being overrun, it's clear that Saul's going to die. He calls to his armour bearer, asks him to kill him so that he wouldn't be uh, you know, captured, tortured by the enemy. The, the armor bearer refuses, terrified. Uh, so Saul falls on his own sword. And when the armor bearer sees that he's dead, he does likewise. 
Uh, it's a tragedy. Saul and his armor bearer have committed suicide on the battlefield. It's a, not a very pretty picture at all. Now David knows that that battle's gone ahead and so he's waiting for news of the battle and it comes. So 2 Samuel chapter 1 starts with this guy who's come with news of the battle and we'll pick it up with verse 4. The man finishes with a key piece of information. He says, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Saul, the one who wanted your very life, the one who's driven you from your home, caused so much fear and anxiety and grief. David writes about these in the Psalms. You read the Psalms and you see it coming off the page, just how much Saul's enmity toward him meant. And now that one is dead. But something's up. It's like David smells something fishy going on in this man's story. So he probes him with questions. His first question, verse 5, is almost saying, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The man answers, verse 6, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. Now, first of all, how do you happen to be on Mount Gilboa while there's a battle going on? That's slightly odd. But then he says, Saul leaning on his spear. Now, I thought it was his sword which he fell on. It could be a mistaken detail in the heat of battle, but we are starting to get suspicious as we read on. He continues, verse 7. When he, that is Saul, turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? Now, we are certain that this guy's story is fishy. Something's up with it. Because we know in the previous chapter what really happened. And here he's saying that Saul spoke to him. In the previous chapter we saw that the armour bearer waited for Saul to die. And then he falls on his own sword. Saul was dead. He couldn't possibly have spoken to this man. Now we know for certain this guy is lying. But why is he lying? We'll have to read on. Listen to Saul's supposed request. Verse 9, Saul said to him, Stand by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. The very request which Saul made to his armour-bearer now supposedly made to him. Verse 10, he continues, So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen he could not survive and I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Ah, now this makes sense. Now we can see why he's lying. He's brought the crown to David. He knows David's going to be the next king and he wants to be the one to put the crown on his head. He wants to be rewarded for doing so. Perhaps get a cushy government job in the new regime. Now perhaps David could pick up some gaps in this man's story. How could the king be left isolated on a battlefield? Where was his armour bearer? But nevertheless, here is proof that the king is dead. 
Now, what would you be feeling in this moment? The one who had been terrorizing you, the one who wanted your death, he's now dead. I'll tell you what I'd be feeling. <sighs> Relief. I'd celebrate. I'd rejoice. I'm free. I can go home. But how will David respond? Let's look, verse 11 and 12. David's response. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, to be honest, I've been thinking all week, trying to think of an illustration of someone who might be like David. Now, I've had a lot of leaders, and I can't think of any who would respond like David. This was the person who wanted him dead. He's now dead, and how does he respond? He's grieved, he mourns, he weeps for him. I can't think of another leader throughout all of history who would respond like David. Sometimes we have a problem with the events which happen in the pages of the Bible. Couldn't believe them. But that also has a root in who, what we believe about God. Now I'm finding David's character incredulous. And what would be the advantage to lie about how David responds here? How would that make him look in his new kingdom? This is incredible, the way that David responds. And it's certainly not the response that the man was expecting. He's standing there with the crowd and the armband trying to offer them to David. And I wonder how long he stood there holding it as David and his men start to mourn. And maybe he thought it would be a show like his was at the start of the chapter. I, I'm wondering how long he held on to them for. David, I've brought them. Take, take the crown. Put it on. But David won't come to his throne like that. He won't come to his throne through a lie. And he won't come to his throne through disobedience. David asks the man, verse 14. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? See, this is what ought to have kept this man from his sin, a right fear. A fear which would drive out all other fears. God had told Samuel to anoint Saul, which he did. And so Saul is the Lord's anointed. And to be against the Lord's anointed is to be against the Lord himself. You do not raise your hand against the Lord or against his anointed. Everyone in Israel knew that. And this man was a resident of Israel. And so he should have known it. And he should have feared above all else being against the Lord. Now, we had this passage read for us. We know what happens. The man expects a reward from David. David has him executed. The man expects to be raised to a position of power. David raises his head. Wow, isn't that incredible? David will not overlook this crime. He executes justice. No matter that this crime was against someone who wanted him dead. 
that no judge, no politician, no business leader, we wouldn't let them be in this situation because we couldn't trust them that they would act rightly. They would let this guy off. See, David is a just king. Not self-serving, not self-seeking. Not like the leaders which we experience. But now, now that this sin, okay, it's done and dealt with, now will you praise David. This is the moment of your coronation. This is the moment you've finally gained peace from Saul and his attacks against your life and your family and your men with you. Now you'll celebrate, won't you? But David is far too other-focused to do that, to indulge his own natural personal desire. So he laments. He puts his real, true, deep grief into words. And he makes his men learn it. And he writes it, he etches it in history so that we would all see what's most important to David what fills his mind as he becomes the leader. I'm just going to point to a couple of verses here. Verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. David knows what the enemies of Israel will take this to mean. He knows they'll be celebrating their God, Dagon, who's brought them about this victory, so they think. And he knows what they'll think of the true God, the God of Israel. And he wishes it were not so, though he knows it will. Verse 21. Mountains of Gilboa, the place where this battle occurred. May you have neither dew nor rain, May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. David curses the very ground on which this tragedy occurred, such is the tragedy which has occurred. The shield of the mighty, the shield of Saul, another symbol of his life now in the dirt, no longer rubbed with oil, now subject to decay, the fallen Saul. And he considers his friend, Jonathan, his faithful friend. His friend who was faithful to his father, standing by him in battle, even though he knew it would be his death. From verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. This was the love between two men who had gone through life and death. This was a soldier's love. This was a love which was on display uh, a couple of weeks ago, Wednesday night, I was watching The State of Origin. I learnt something as I was watching The State of Origin. I learnt about how I should hug my wife as I was watching that match. You see those men embrace one another when they put a ball across a white line, but sport is war these days. This is the love that existed between David and Jonathan. More wonderful than that of women. See, his concern here as he's lamenting, his concern is not for himself, but for what others will take this to mean about God, 
the tragedy of the ruler who's failed and for his faithful friend. Look, there's the passage. We've worked our way through the passage. What can we learn about David's king? Well, firstly, we see that David refuses to grasp for power and the crown that's before him. He patiently endures suffering, rather, out of obedience to God. He refuses to enter his kingdom through disobedience. He refuses to enter his kingdom through ways which God had not appointed. We learn that about David. We learn that as king, he will rule justly. He will not be self-seeking. He will not be self-serving. He will execute justice. A crime, no matter the crime, will not pay in his kingdom. And David's concern is always for the other. He won't indulge his own personal preference to celebrate a personal gain at the expense of another. Now, did you notice in this lament, there's a picture of us in it. There's a picture of humanity. Fallen. A tragedy of failed rule with the ground under a curse because of it. And so what Israel need and what we all need is a king who will not fail. And David, I marvel at David, but he is just a glimpse, he is just a shadow of the king who we're being offered. David has his failures. David isn't the solution to the greatest problem which we have. Jesus, who is from the line of David, he is the one that we need. So what can we learn about Jesus as he's foreshadowed in these pages? Jesus refused to grasp at power. Rather, he patiently endured suffering out of obedience to God. He refused to come into his kingdom through disobedience, through ways which God had not appointed. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Satan tempts Jesus to bow down and worship him. And if he would, he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, all the kingdoms of the world belong to Jesus, but that's not the way that he would come into his kingdom. He knows that the cross comes before the crown. And Jesus patiently endures suffering out of obedience to God and refuses to enter his kingdom through a way which God had not appointed. And as king, Jesus will rule justly. He's not self-seeking, not self-serving, but he will execute justice. A crime, no matter the crime, will not pay in his kingdom. And Jesus is the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word here for the Lord's anointed, translated into English, is Messiah. And the Greek word, for the Lord's anointed, translated into English, is Christ. Jesus, the Lord's anointed. He allowed hands to be raised against him as he was put up on the cross. And from the cross, to those people who had put him there, to those who wanted his death, he speaks a word of forgiveness. Now, how is that just? It's only just because they've put him there. It's only just because of the cross 
At the cross, we see God's justice being poured out on Jesus. This is how much he cares about justice. And Jesus' concern is always for the other. He won't indulge his own personal preference at the expense of the other. Saul is a picture of humanity. We might view ourselves as David's, um, mostly success, a little bit of fail. But even still, we fail. We need a king who won't fail. This is Jesus, the sinless saviour. How good is Jesus? Incredible. He is the king that we need. We marvel at David and his response, unlike any other leader we've ever experienced or the world has ever experienced. We marvel at him, and yet he is just a shadow, a glimpse of Jesus and his rule. How good is he as a king, and how good would his kingdom be? Now, if you don't know Jesus as your king, come along to Christianity Explored. Find out more about this king and this kingdom which he rules. Now, for those who are part of his kingdom, for those who are leaders in workplaces, in church, in the community, at their home, what might, make, what might we take from this? What might we learn about leadership in this? Well, what do the people who you're leading need the most? They need you to have all of your needs met in Jesus. The only place that they can be. So that you wouldn't grasp at power. Wouldn't grasp at the position and the power which it brings. But you would, uh, having all your needs met in Christ, that you would then be able to go out and serve others. What this also means in this world which we live in, sceptical of leadership, it means that we would take leadership if that's what obedience would demand. People need leading. People will be led. What better way than have someone who's experienced the uh, obedient, just, other person serving leadership of Jesus, have them in positions of leadership. And so for you, if the, per, if the circumstance is right, obedience might mean stepping up into a position of leadership. And when you do, you won't grasp at the power. Um, you won't grasp at the glory which it might bring and you won't shy away from the suffering which it might bring. You might not turn to disobedience as an attempt to get out of the suffering, but you would endure it patiently for the good of others. Now, the Bible and what we're going to see through this series in 2 Samuel, it's not going to shy away from the hard stuff. It's going to tell us exactly what we need. And you need a king after God's own heart. This is going to be a good series. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, as we close this opening uh, uh, sermon, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rule. We thank you for Jesus' rule, who ruled in a way that we ought to have, but didn't. Thank you for his obedience coming to the throne through the cross, where we see ultimate 
justice poured out, forgiveness offered to us who fail. Thank you that he wasn't self-seeking, isn't self-serving, served others. May that shape us uh, in all of the positions that we're in. Uh, please, Lord, bring your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Amakalite, isn't that a bit?